Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Thanks, guys. I'm going to be reading the Bible reading for this morning, and it's from Revelation chapter 12 to chapter 14, verse 5. So I'll give you some time to look that up in your, on your device or in your Bible. Yep, so starting at Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been held down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and a half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had, be- he had given authority to the beast. 
And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given over given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain for the creation from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. That number is 666. Sorry, last bit. Um, yeah, so chapter 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Thanks, Izzy. It's quite a complex uh, passage and a bit of a long one. Uh, well, some of you, I uh, hope you're doing well this morning because you're probably cold or either freezing cold. But uh, uh, I remember some time ago when... Uh, I had a hairstyle that um, wasn't so good in the cold. I had a number three. Uh, and that was, uh, well, it was actually in some ways pleasing to finally look mildly threatening. Uh, I reckon I would have got a one 
or a two out of ten of the scale of um, international gangster threatening looks. Um, would have had to have been a very dark alley and I probably still would have had to have said please to hand over your wallet. Um, but the choice uh, was sort of kind of mine and kind of wasn't because it was when I joined the Army Reserves and uh, every, all of the males had to have their head shaved. Uh, and I've always been interested in the Army. Uh, I think because of the values of service and sacrifice and um, possibly even giving your life up to protect the weak. Uh, but I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the military as well because I see how damaging war is and how uh, just military power has been so misused over the centuries. Um, but in these chapters uh, that Izzy read out, we have, uh, we're confronted with this picture of war. And it's the, it's the biggest war you've ever seen in your life. It's one that spans history. And yet there's the ships and planes and tanks that we normally associate with war are not involved here. It's more of a cosmic spiritual battle. Uh, you have the armies of God's angels versus the armies of Satan's angels. And it's the longest war that the universe has ever seen. You have uh, a time, the time described here seems to be just before Jesus' birth, all the way until his second coming when he comes again in judgment. And we're in the middle of it. And we're not just helpless civilians. We actually have a role to play. Our allegiance as to what side we're on is really vitally important. And so the choice that we face uh, is who are we going to align ourselves with? Uh, who do you really worship? In this cosmic struggle, are you going to align yourself with God or the forces that are anti-God? And if our allegiance is to God, then these chapters say that God has a personal mission for you in your life, a part to play in fighting on his side. So before we get into it, uh, let's just have a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation and we thank you that you have spoken into history uh, and the things that you've said in the past and prophesied in the past, some of them have come to pass, but there are some things still yet to be fulfilled. We just ask that you remove distractions from us this morning and speak to us personally. Uh, may you guide me uh, to that my words would be spoken through the Holy Spirit uh, and may you be glorified more. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Revelation can be quite a confusing array of symbols and numbers and in preparing this sermon I got lost a few times. So uh, I thought it'd be good to maybe just quickly summarise the book of where we're up to so far so you can see where these chapters fit in. Uh, Revelation 1 verse 19 is a, a kind of uh, a little uh, contents verse of what the whole book is about because it says, John is told to write what you have seen and what is and what will take place after this. And so in the past is what John saw and he had a vision of Jesus, the exalted son of man in all of his glory and then we have the, the present. Uh, chapters two and three are what 
John was told to write what is. And these are the seven letters that he writes to the churches in Asia, what is now modern day Turkey. And that's where he encourages them. He challenges, uh, Jesus challenges these churches for their apathy, but he also encourages them to remain faithful uh, and to endure persecution. And then the future, what will take place after this is the chapters all the way from 3 uh, to 22, but especially 3 to 19 is a series of judgments. There's uh, seven judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And some, many people try to interpret these chronologically, but each of the series of judgments seems to conclude with the end of the age. So perhaps it's maybe uh, better to interpret them as all happening um, in parallel. And where do these judgments begin? Well, in our chapter today, uh, 12 verses 5 and 6 uh, talks about the birth uh, and the ascension of Jesus. And so John is writing to the churches who uh, exist in his day and he wants to encourage them and he uses apocalyptic imagery uh, with code words that helps them to understand that he's talking about the governors of the day, the emperors of Rome, but then it also applies to us because we're in this period between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return with his second coming. And so if you understand the cosmic war being described in these verses, then you'll be able to make wise choices in your life today. A key theme of the Bible is suffering before glory. And that's what we see in the final three chapters of the Bible, verses, uh, chapters 20 to 22. And this describes, uh, after that period of conflict, the confident hope that we have, the new heaven and the new earth, the, the time where there'll be no pain, no more suffering, no more death. Uh, it's something that I really look forward to and is a great motivator for me, and I hope it is for you. But to understand this war, and conflict, there's three things that I think we need to understand today. And so the first thing is for us to know our enemy, and the second thing is for us to know our God, and then what's our role? How do we fight the good fight? So first of all, knowing our enemy. In the letters that we looked at in chapters two and three, a frequent encouragement to the believers was to conquer, and to overcome. And this is a military term for defeating the enemy. But to defeat any enemy, every military commander needs a strategy. And in order to establish a strategy, you really first need to know your enemy. And so this brings to mind a famous quote from a Chinese general in 6th century BC called Sun Tzu, and he wrote The Art of War, which is a very famous book on military tactics and strategy. And he says, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. So that's why we're going to look at who the enemy is and what their methods are. So first of all, the key players are actually in these chapters 
kind of like an evil trinity. There's three. There's the dragon, there's the first beast, and there's the second beast, or the false prophet. In chapter 12, the dragon is clearly identified in, as Satan in verse 12. It's a red dragon, and the colour red is linked to violence and the blood of the saints in chapter 17 of Revelation. And this dragon has seven heads with seven crowns. And this symbolises his authority. And it has ten horns, which symbolises great power. And later in chapter 19, we see that the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords also has many crowns. And seven symbolises in the book of Revelation often perfection or it's God's number. So these seven crowns and ten horns are actually a way of saying that the, the red dragon is trying to usurp the place of God, he's trying to be uh, worshipped and he's making false claims about his authority over the universe. The second member of the evil trinity, so to speak, is the beast. Uh, like the dragon, he also has seven heads and ten horns. Once again, symbolising great power and authority, trying to be in the place of God. And each head has a blasphemous name. And this just shows that he works against God. Now this beast has a number. It's quite a famous number, 666. Lots of wacky interpretations. Uh, I think there's uh, two which probably uh, have some uh, more significance to them. One is to view the number symbolically, so to see that seven is God's number and symbolises perfection in the book of Revelation. Uh, and six is just not quite seven. It's not quite there, so it's man's number. We never reach God's standards of perfection. But another uh, commonly held view that probably especially makes sense in John's era is that uh, letters could be assigned numbers. And so when John says, work it out for yourself, uh, what this number actually adds up to, if you look at the name Nero Caesar in Aramaic, the letters add up to 666. And Nero, in John's day, was a beast of an evil emperor. He would light Christians up in public and use them as uh, public flaming torches. Finally, we have the second beast or the false prophet. And in keeping with the three trying to be like the real Trinity, uh, this second beast has actually many similarities to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, but we see in these couple of chapters that the second beast, his aim is to glorify the first beast. And he leads people to worship the first beast, whereas the Holy Spirit leads people to worship Christ. And the second beast forces people to receive this mark on their foreheads or their hands as a seal to sort of declare who their allegiance is to, whereas the Holy Spirit is our seal of God's salvation. So now that we know the key characters, I want to look at the methods of what we need to look out for. One of the most famous submarine movies is The Hunt for Red October. Don't know whether you've ever seen it, but there's some real uh, moments of nail-biting tension in that movie. And one is when a submarine is hunting another one, 
uh, and it finally finds it and it fires a torpedo. And torpedoes are really powerful weapons. Uh, so you're wondering what's going to happen as the torpedo is getting closer and closer. But I won't spoil the story because you might not have seen the movie. Uh, but I, all that to say that we often associate submarines with a huge amount of power due to their missiles and torpedoes. But actually, those weapons are not the most important asset of the submarine. The most important asset of a submarine is stealth. Because we can use radars to, de to detect uh, ships and submarines further than the eye can see, but the ocean is so big, to find a submarine is like finding a needle in a haystack. It's very difficult to, to penetrate. And I, just, I subscribed for some years to uh, having worked in defence to someone who uh, was in the uh, area of anti-submarine warfare for a few decades. And I think one of the takeaways that I learnt from him is when you're hunting a submarine, the, the hunt is actually less about finding the submarine, it's more about thinking like the submarine's commander. If, the, if you can roughly guess the commander's mission, then you can probably work out if you know the personality of the commander and their typical methods, you could probably work out what they're going to do next and maybe even where to find them. And I think this is really crucial for us as we look at these chapters to understand our enemy. What are his methods? How can we be on the lookout and aware of what's really going on in the world that we live in? And the first of Satan's strategies in these chapters is power. Satan persecutes and conquers God's people. In fact, it's quite a dire situation in many of the descriptions and the stories. There's a section in the start of chapter 12 where it says that the dragon's tail sweeps down uh, a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to earth. When you link this with another apocalyptic passage in Daniel chapter 8, we see that stars actually refer to God's people. And so in the context of the story, this, this dragon's tail sweeping down the stars of heaven before the child is born is probably referring to some kind of persecution before Jesus was born. This could be Antiochus Epiphanes who persecuted a lot of the Jews. Uh, it could also be Herod uh, who aimed to wipe out all of the babies in Bethlehem around the time of Jesus' birth. And then we see that the people's reaction to this power of the beast. They say, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? And this is kind of a rhetorical question. They just see that the beast is so powerful, it's such a war machine that no other force can counter it. But it's also a blasphemous question because when the Israelites were rescued out of Egypt, uh, they got to the other side of the Red Sea and they sang uh, in the Song of the Sea, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And worship is what Satan has always wanted. In chapter 13, it says, If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. And so during this period of 
cosmic conflict. We see that Christians will experience persecution. They'll experience martyrdom. They'll be imprisoned. And this happened in John's time. And we don't see it so much here in Australia, but we see it in plenty of countries around the world where people have to have underground churches uh, hidden away from the eyes of those in power. Places like Afghanistan and Yemen, Somalia and China, you can be killed for your faith or at the very least imprisoned. But there's also more than just military power. This beast uses political or financial pressure. In 13 verse 15, it says, if you refuse to worship the beast, you'll be killed. And in the next verse, it says, unless you have the mark of the beast, you can't buy or sell. And so the readers, we see that we're faced with a choice in this conflict. Who are we going to align ourselves with? Will we have the mark of Jesus for eternal life or will we have the mark of the beast uh, by adopting the ways of the beast? And the second method that the beasts use is propaganda. It's about deception. A Greek writer, Aeschylus, in 500 BC said, in war, truth is the first casualty. And if you look at any uh, dictatorship through history, propaganda is a key weapon. And so the, the, the beast seduces people by wonders, imagery, and impressive signs to worship the first beast. And he also slanders God's name. And once again, we have a counterfeit God kind of idea. This evil trinity is setting itself up to, be, to try and be like the true trinity. Because the, the first beast, it has a fatal wound that has been healed. And that's kind of a, of a perverse parody, really, of Jesus' resurrection. And the second beast makes fire come from heaven. And that kind of recalls the way that uh, in the Old Testament, Elijah uh, had God sent fire from heaven to prove his identity. And the beasts, they perform signs and wonders. And this is kind of similar to Jesus performing miracles to demonstrate his divinity. And the second beast is described as looking like a lamb, but speaking like a dragon. And there's one true lamb in Revelation, and that's Jesus. And the beast tries to mimic this, but its words expose its true intentions. And so the beast methods are really ideological. They're adjusting the culture and they're, they're trying to justify anti-God ideas. And I think we see twisted truth and propaganda in various forms today that maybe on the surface level seem to make sense, but when you dig deeper and understand what's going on, they don't make sense. We hear statements like, science has replaced God. Or religion is, is for people who need a crutch in life. Or prayer, it achieves nothing. There are two famous books that I think uh, cover both of these aspects. One is a book by George Orwell called 1984. And this is a vision of a totalitarian state that controls people through the use of power. And then there's another approach, uh, a famous book called Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And that describes another approach where 
People are not controlled by power, but by pleasure. They're fed uh, all the kinds of pleasure that they desire and then manipulated into supporting the government. Uh, and there's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, and the author writes, in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. All will fear those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would re be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. What do you think is more true today of our Australian culture? I think our most dangerous method we face is the propaganda side because we tend towards the apathy, we tend towards trivial entertainment and we're frequently manipulated by pleasure. And so we see these two main methods of Satan to watch out for. One is a brute force of power through persecution and pressure and the other is through deception of luring people to believe lies about God. Now you might feel a little bit intimidated so far about this might and deception of the evil trinity. It seems so powerful. And yet, as we see in chapter 14, that the victory has already been won. The battle has not yet finished, but we know the end. And so now I wanna look at the other side of the battle, how we can know our God. So back to Sun Tzu, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. What do we learn about God who fights our battles? If you put Revelation on a scroll and rolled it out, you would find Revelation 12, chapters 10 to 12, uh, verses 10 to 12, uh, at the centre of this scroll. And they're really key verses to understanding the whole book because it says the Messiah is the victor over Satan. And so I think we see that one of the key things is that God is sovereign through this story. While the saints are persecuted and martyred, and it looks like God is losing the battle, actually he's winning. And so we had the story of the woman and the dragon. The woman gives birth to a child, and this child we know is Jesus because it's male and it also says that he will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And that's a quote from Psalm chapter two. Uh, it's also confirmed later in Revelation 19. And, and the woman is not actually Mary, but Israel. And this is because the woman has 12 crowns and 12 is often associated with Israel in the book of Revelation. But also this woman is crying out in birth pangs. And if you look at the book of Isaiah, there's several references to Israel being described as being in, in agony and trouble before she gives birth to the Messiah. And so the, the dragon stands in front of the woman waiting to devour this child as soon as it's born. But then God snatches the child and takes it up to heaven. And so this is really a picture uh, in a very compressed form 
of how Jesus is born, the devil has a plan to destroy the Messiah, the key to God's strategy uh, for the restoration of the world, but then the child goes to heaven, describing Jesus' ascension to heaven. And in actual fact, the devil's plan uh, to destroy the Messiah turns into a victory. And then the woman is taken to the wilderness and cared for there. And the wilderness might not seem to you uh, a great um, place of uh, caring and of comfort, but it's not really supposed to be. The picture is that if you look back at Exodus when Israel was pulled out of Egypt, uh, the wilderness was the place they were rescued to and God provided for them there. And that's the description we see here, that the woman is nourished. And as a church today, uh, we have God's word and the spirit. And we're exiles in the wilderness, we're waiting to go to our eventual home. And it's not a place of comfort for us, but it is safe. We, God is still our protector, but we are tested. I think the second thing we learn about God from these chapters is that he is victorious. Chapter 12, 7 to 9 says Satan is thrown out of heaven. And this has huge ramifications for us because it describes Satan as being an accuser. It says, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. In Job, uh, a book in the Old Testament, it says that Satan has access to heaven. He's able to go into heaven and he talks with God and he accuses Job, a good man, of actually having a fake faith. Uh, and it seems like uh, up until Jesus' death, Job, uh, Satan has free access into heaven. He's able to accuse people. But after Jesus' death, it's different. He no longer belongs. He's no longer got access because he has nothing to accuse us of. And it conjures up this uh, courtroom image, actually, uh, that we are in the dock. Uh, God is judging us for our sins, but then the judge, Jesus, steps down and takes our place and is our substitute. And so then when the prosecutor, Satan, accuses us of the things that we've done wrong, we have Jesus standing in our place. So he has nothing to accuse us of anymore. We're declared not guilty. Romans 8.1 says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And 1 John talks about Jesus being our advocate, our representative. Finally, I want to look at our role in this battle, how we are to fight the good fight. Because I think these chapters are kind of a wake-up call to each of us and to the church not to be asleep in a war, this is not the time to be apathetic about the gospel. And John Piper has uh, a little encouragement uh, from a book he wrote called Don't Waste Your Life. He says, I need to hear this message again and again about being in a war because I slip into a peacetime mindset as certainly as rain falls down and flames go up. I am wired to love the same toys that the world loves I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. 
Before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that first looks at what man can do, not what God can do. It's a terrible sickness, and I thank God for those who have forced me time and time again to have a wartime mindset. So we're in a war, and it can seem intimidating. And while there's no place for apathy, there's also no need for despair. Because the one command in chapter 12 is actually rejoice. And we can rejoice because we're on the winning side and Satan is a defeated foe. So the first response is to the beast's power. Patient, endurance and faithfulness is what John says we need to have. Because Satan is still active. 1 Peter 5 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So this response of faithfulness and patient endurance is especially targeted at people who experience it physically, uh, physical persecution. But, but I think it's also true of us in that we face mockery or we face taunts or misunderstandings. And I think suffering that we, when we see, look around us, it may look like Satan's victory, but actually it's, it's the saint's victory over Satan instead because Jesus' victory was enabled through suffering and we identify with Jesus' death and his suffering on the cross. I think we also see this theme of the defeat of the evil trinity coming through subversive means. True victory actually comes through a lamb dying sacrificially and then the lamb's people enduring. So we don't reply to brute force with brute force, but instead trusting in the victory of the lamb who's already won. And so the outcome of the war has been decided, so our role is to be faithful until the end. There's a, a recent Roe versus Wade decision uh, in the US uh, over abortion. And I think sometimes, uh, I mean, I'm pleased that it occurs because I think it will mean more of voiceless babies will be able to live. However, I think it's also helpful to see that we shouldn't put our trust in uh, sociological or political victories because that's not really where our hope lies in earthly victories. During our time here on earth, God does allow Satan to win uh, victories at times, but our role is to keep being faithful. Secondly, I think our response to the beast's propaganda is that of wisdom, wisdom in worship. Because propaganda is far more subtle than a brute display of force, but it's actually often just as deadly. And we see the second beast uh, representing these anti-God ideals overwhelms people through seduction, through attracting and demanding worship of anything but God. 
And today we worship many things. As you think about your life, who do you really worship or what do you really worship? In other words, what matters most to you? When you make your decisions in life, you have priorities that help you make those decisions. What or who is your top priority? We have many things that we unconsciously start to worship. It might be status or power or love or possessions or promotion or even acceptance by other people. And we all pursue a kind of salvation. We all look to something for lasting contentment, for our value, for our identity and for fulfilment. But I just want to encourage you that these chapters ask you to be wise. They say, don't look for salvation in things that don't last. And finally, I think a response that we need to have to God's victory is that of bearing testimony. It says, believers have already conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Yes, Jesus has done the main part of the victory, but he includes us in the battle as well. So do you have a word of encouragement maybe for a brother or a sister in Christ? Or could there be one uh, in which maybe there's a friend or a relative or a work colleague who maybe hasn't yet seen through the lies of a system that leaves God out. And maybe you can help them to change their allegiance to the King of Kings. Uh, let's uh, finish in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement of seeing the big picture of this cosmic battle. We have a strong enemy and he's cunning uh, but we don't need to despair because the battle has already been won. Help us to recognise areas of our life in which we are apathetic. Uh, give us courage to make life-changing choices, to, to do the mission, to get involved with the things that you have each one of us to do. And help us to be wise, to be able to discern uh, anti-God propaganda and fill our minds instead with God's truth. And please give us the courage to be able to speak up. There are many people in our lives uh, who have no idea about your goodness and your love and your plan to restore the world uh, and what you've done for each one of us. So help us to be witnesses of this amazing love, uh, to introduce them to the King of Kings and help them to enter your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.